If you want to keep your Bibles open, uh, you may find it helpful as we just think about that passage. If you've been following the drama of 1 Samuel, uh, you'll hopefully remember the events leading up to tonight. Saul is still king, but his days are certainly numbered. David has spared Saul's life on two occasions, simply because he was the Lord's anointed. With his back against the wall, David moves to Ziklag and is living among the sworn enemies of God's people, the Philistines. His dubious offer to fight against Israel has been declined, so he's gone back to Ziklag, where, as we heard from Scott a couple of weeks ago, that he's rescued the people who live there from kidnapping by the Amalekites. So here we land in 1 Samuel 31, the final chapter of 1 Samuel. And tonight, I hope that we can feel the sense of sheer dread that must have rested on Saul's shoulders as he comes to fight. For this chapter, David is out of the picture. This is not a case of David versus Saul. This is a case of the Lord versus Saul. Imagine here being Saul. Imagine going into battle against this army renowned for its brute force and military tactics with the words from his encounter with the witch of Endor in chapter 28 ringing in his ears. Saul, the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom from your hand and given it into the hand of your neighbor, David. And Saul, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. Saul is fighting a battle he cannot possibly win. If you were Saul, what would you do? Would you run, repent, surrender? Would you stand and fight? I would imagine that the sense of terror that he felt at the events of Endor never left Saul. And imagine that fear crystallizing when you see the events in verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Saul's army is getting slaughtered, and Saul knows it's only going to get worse from here. In verse 2, we find that three of, David's, or three of Saul's four sons are killed including David's best friend, Jonathan. In verse 3, it moves very quickly. The archers of the Philistines finally hit their prized target, Saul. Then in verse 4, we find the tragic end of Saul. He knew he was finished. He knew the battle was over. He knew he had lost. But he's lost everything. He's lost his kingship, 
He's lost his family. He's lost his hope. So he orders the armor bearer to kill him. And why? Well, it's not honor. It's fear. He's afraid that the uncircumcised Philistines will take him and torture him. But the armor bearer will not do what he asks. He will not put a sword through Saul. Probably, I think, because he knew he was the Lord's anointed. So Saul does something that David himself would not do. Saul kills the Lord's anointed. Saul kills himself. Ultimately, Saul was not killed by David or the Philistines. The Lord didn't magically strike Saul down dead. Tragically, the judgment on Saul's head was on Saul himself. Think about every opportunity that Saul has had to repent. Every opportunity that he had to bow the knee to the true king of Israel. But Saul would not let go. Even when fear seized him, even when he knew there was no way out, even when he was arming himself to go and fight an unwinnable battle, Satan had gripped him against the Lord, just like he gripped Judas. God's judgment brought down upon his own head by his own hand. Saul had led his family, his armor-bearer, and according to verse 6, all his men to death that day, fighting a battle he could not win against an enemy he could not defeat. In verse 7, we find out that the news proves absolutely catastrophic to the Israelite campaign. The Israelites abandoned their cities to the Philistines. And that's the scenario that David inherits as king, not one of joy or victory. But what happens to Saul? Well, the Philistines come, decapitate him, strip his armor, and send messengers to the, throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Do you wonder where the Lord is in all this? The idols are getting all the praise for the Philistine victory because they didn't know. The Philistines didn't understand that even though it looks like defeat, even though it looks like the king is dead, even though it looks like the Lord is dead and absolutely unable to contend with the so-called might of Baal or Dagon or Ashtaroth, the three fertility gods, we know that the true king of Israel is coming. When the Philistines put the armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and nail Saul's body to the wall at Bethshan. They thought that was it. Saul was gone, family decimated, David's off living in one of their Philistine cities. The Israelites are just struck and scattered. 
Where's the hope in Israel? Is there hope in Israel? Is it in the valiant man of uh, Jabash Gilead who gave the headless bodies a cremation and buried the bones under the tamarisk tree? Is the hope in the week-long mourning period? When we eventually get into uh, 2 Samuel in September, we will see that it does look like failure. The Ark of the Covenant is still with the Philistines. There's no worship. There's more bloodshed. Israel is in the midst of civil war. Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, has proclaimed himself as king of Israel, while the tribe of Judah has defected to David. It wasn't just as simple as, goodbye Saul, hello David. The church state of Israel remained very divided. Externally, they had to cope with attacks from their enemies. Internally, the religious life was a mess with worship of false gods. Humanly speaking, Israel was not a place where hope was to be found. Hope was all but gone from Israel. And looking at the situation, humanly speaking, it is absolutely grim. These were supposed to be God's chosen people. This was supposed to be the Old Testament church, a people ruled by God to worship him in the ways that he has ordained. And instead, they're heading into political civil war. Without getting too morose, I wonder if you can see something of the continuity with the church today. Israel had lost the reason for their existence. Israel, the Old Testament church, did not exist to bring glory to David or to Saul or to Ishbosheth. Instead, the Old Testament church was never meant to be separated from God. As Isaiah 43 says, the Lord has called them out and created them for his glory. Yet we find something else happening here. We find rebellion. We find civil war. We find nobody listening to God. It amazes me when we read through Scripture that God speaks and nature obeys him. The light obeys him. The waves obey him. The winds obey him. The animals obey him. But the people that God has chosen for himself, Eden, disobedience. The desert, disobedience. The promised land, disobedience. Exile, disobedience. The, the Messiah comes. They kill him. The missionaries go out and acts. They torture them. Paul, killed. Peter, killed. James, killed. And so on, and so on, and so on. Moving to the latter times, those who believed in Christ alone were burnt at the stake. John Wycliffe, killed. William Tyndale, killed. John Huss, killed. John Christodom, killed. The Huguenots, killed. By whom? The political and religious leaders of their day. The people who had the power to stop 
as far as they could with their human eyes the power to stop the proclamation of the true king of Israel. Why? Well, because just like Saul, the people of Israel in 1 Samuel, they've utterly forgotten the reason why they existed. The church, the assembly, God's called people have never, ever existed for their own sake. And it's the same today. Eden Grove does not exist for her own sake. Eden Grove does not exist to give Scott or me or Dave a job. Eden Grove does not exist to give us somewhere to go on a Sunday morning. She doesn't even exist to teach us how to be better people. She doesn't exist to break the back of God's people with behavior modification or try harder. Eden Grove exists to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Have you ever thought about that? That we exist for Christ's glory. And if we don't exist for that reason, we need reformation. It is so easy to take our eye off the ball. One of the biggest threats to the church is not what's going on out there. It's what's going on inside. It is so, so easy to take good things and put our hope in them, to take good things and turn them into God things. Is it good that congregations have lots of money? Yes. Is it good if all that money is locked away in building funds and everything else to provide so-called security instead of being spent in the proclamation of the gospel. No, that is not a good thing. Is it good that we enjoy worship? Yes, and I sincerely hope that we do enjoy worshiping God. Is it good when enjoying worship becomes the driving force and the guiding principle behind what we do? No, that is not a good thing. That is very quickly how we end up with a 90-minute rock concert and a three-minute homily. But when this happens, and as we've seen across the water, different churches, heresy creeps in. The Bible is relegated to a footnote. And within a generation, we have people who don't understand who Jesus is, aren't quite sure what he's done, and are quite fluffy on the notion of sin. If we lose our focus on Jesus, the real Jesus, the one whom Scripture speaks about, then, friends, we have lost our reason for existing. If we're down that avenue, reform or shut the buildings. What if the mission of the church was something old, but something new? What if absolutely everything that went on in this building, everything that we did, was solely centered on one thing, to go and make disciples who can confess with David, I love you, Lord. Would that be a paradigm shift for us? Maybe not. Maybe that's where we're at. But is it something as a congregation that we could reevaluate? Is that something as individual Christians 
we should evaluate about ourselves. Because to exist as a church for any other reason than the God-given mission at the end of, of uh, Matthew 28 should give us pause to think. Are we a little bit more like Saul? Are we a little bit more like Judas? Who sold out David for his own glory? Who sold out Jesus for a few coins? Are we in danger of selling out Jesus for anything else? That's always the threat, isn't it? Folks, please understand that Satan is not working in force in the gay bars or the abortion clinics. Our own nature takes care of that. Satan is in the churches. That is where the fight is strongest. A far wiser man than me, whose name I can't quite pronounce, so forgive me, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, said this, If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the sea. And our French friend has hit the nail right on the head. Far too often in churches, we slide back into a soft legalism. If we do X, Y, or Z, God will make us successful because we've earned it. If we do, if we do, if we do. When a church's mindset is already on that trajectory, I think we're already on the wrong road. It's a pretty sad way to live the Christian life, isn't it? But we're free. We're free. And instead of legalism, Christ has given us an amazing vision. Far more amazing than the sea. He's given us grace. He's given us himself. Are we disobedient? Yes, sometimes, most of the time. Do we get it right all the time? Nope. Do we look at empty pews and think no one wants to come because it's boring or the sermons are boring or whatever? Yeah, a lot of times, maybe. Do we look at the empty chairs at the prayer meetings and wonder where everyone is? Yep. Honestly, I'm glad we're not running a cinema. If we did, we'd be closed down years ago. But that's not about us. It's about Christ. We know that. But do we believe it? It's about Christ, the true King of Israel. The hope that in this place, his word is still proclaimed, prayed and sung. And that even if every pew and pulpit in this town, this county, this country, denies Christ, that Eden Grove will not, because we know our King. Because we know the grace of the King who loves us. The king who didn't put a sword through himself to escape the torture. But the king who willingly went to the cross to save his people. To save us. To get it into our skulls that all of the good things we do are still not good enough. Even the good that we do is Christ working in us but knowing that because he has paid it all, we have it all. That inheritance that Peter talks about, the inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, being kept in heaven 
for you. And that is the message that we have to proclaim to Dromore Street, to Main Street, to Windmill Street, to Langley Road, even to Saintfield. Saintfield is the end of the earth, I think. If you want to build a church, don't drum up folks to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea of grace and love that is in Jesus Christ. We literally have the best news that any of us could ever imagine. In fact, we would never imagine it. We would never guess it. So God in his grace has given us the Bible. It tells us what we need to know. But here's our challenge. The folks out there, they're not going to guess it either. They have to be told. They have to be told. Do you yearn to see this place full of people who can't get enough about hearing about Christ, singing about Christ, living for Christ, and getting to know his word so well that they see him on every page? Saying, I love you, Lord, not just because it's written on a hymn sheet, not just because it's on fantastic screens on PowerPoint, not thinking, oh, not another Sam, but because it is the confession of their heart. I love you, Lord. God is not finished with us yet. Folks, look around. If you look to the back of the church, that's behind you. If we look around, we see empty pews. Those empty pews mean that there is lots of room for folks who will come. And while, humanly speaking, we are fighting a battle we cannot possibly win, we are in Christ, and he has already won the war. What's our next step? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you for your grace that even though we very seldom get anything right, that you are a patient Father who loves us. And Lord, we thank you for the King of Kings, the true King of Israel, who didn't evade the terror, who wasn't flinching back, but who gladly chose the cross for us, folk who cannot help themselves, folk who are dead in their sin without the Holy Spirit breathing life to us. Lord, please bless us. Bless this church. Bless the visitors who are here. Bless those who care. And Lord, we confess that when we do get it wrong, we have a great Savior who loves us and is ready to forgive us. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen.